With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thursday, August 27th, the Two-Footed Podcast brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at libertyshield.com. Very excited today to be joined by our first guest on the new podcast. It's Mr. Lee Scott, author of Mastering the Premier League, the Tactical Concepts Behind Pep Guardiola's Manchester City, and his new release, King Klopp, Rebuilding the Liverpool Dynasty. Lee, how are you, sir? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's been quite a while since we talked. Yeah, Used to, um, since since we talked, you've had, you've published two books and are now working on a third, um, which is really exciting. So I want to jump straight in. Uh, your new book, King Klopp: Rebuilding the Liverpool Dynasty, arrived to me this morning. So I'm really looking forward to digging into it. But what was the concept behind it? What was the idea behind it? Why Klopp? You were obviously writing this in advance of Liverpool winning the league. So what was it about Klopp that drew you to him? I think I've always been fascinated a little bit with Jurgen Klopp going back to... I think I didn't really become fully aware of him like most people until he moved to coach Borussia Dortmund. And then obviously that Dortmund side, which was so exciting back in the days of Mario Godse, of Oscar Gundogan and Robert Lewandowski being in that team. The way that he set them up but then gave them enough freedom in the tactical game plan, if you like, to play this style of, of heavy metal football, as he termed it back then. I thought it was really fascinating seeing him come across a team like Liverpool, where his identity in a footballing sense matched so well with the club and with the city and with the fan base. Everything just seemed to merge together as one. And I think that we started to see signs of, of little things that he was doing to adapt to the English game, to adapt his style. In the same way that Pep Guardiola did when he moved to Manchester City, initially he had to make changes to his game model in order to, to make everything work in synergy. Jurgen Klopp was the same. Um, I was fascinated with the, the way that he built his team and the way that he set them up in a very specific tactical pattern, but one that was, was so effective and so difficult to defend against. So for me, it just made more sense since I was looking at them in depth anyway, just to follow up the first book with the second one, looking at Klopp in particular. So I can't help but notice that after the introduction, the first chapter is entitled Trent Alexander-Arnold. And obviously he has been just this incredible young player developing right in front of our eyes at, at a really, really alarming rate for opposition players. Can you can you go a little bit more in depth on Trent and what you see as his importance to the Liverpool team? Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's something. It's a comparison that's been made quite a lot, I think, throughout the, the fan media and throughout media itself. That that Trent Alexander Arnold has the ability and the capacity to play exactly as 
Kevin De Bruyne does for Manchester City almost. But he's doing it from a full-back position as opposed to from a position as one of the eights, which is what makes it so interesting to me. And I think over the course of the last season, the title-winning season is when we truly saw Trent's role adapt a little bit more to fit his skill set. So we saw him at times become so inverted he was playing in that half-space position in possession. And, and the interesting thing for me was that Jurgen Klopp found a way to accommodate that movement from Trent by asking Jordan Henderson to move from the eighth position, which would normally be in that half space, and Jordan Henderson would move out to the right-hand side in order to still provide width, but to also create space for Trent Alexander-Arnold. But it was his full range of passing from that position that was most interesting to me. We we talk and we see the, the diagonal balls across to the left-back position where Andy Robertson could take possession and drive forward for Liverpool, but also, the, the more nuanced passes, so the line-breaking passes in defeat from Mino or to Mane or to Salah, or the clipped balls over the top to where the strikers are spinning into space, I think that for such a young player, he has such an impact from a tactical point of view on the Liverpool side because of the sheer range of ways that he can affect the opposition. It is very unusual to see the primary playmaker in a team being the right-back. The only time I can remember that being the case was Inter Milan a number of years ago when Javier Zanetti was their right back and everything sort of ran through him. But he didn't have the expansive range of passing or he didn't use the expansive range of passing that Trent did. And it's an interesting point you mentioned about Henderson and that want to, or that, that need for him to push wide, wide and be almost a right winger in possession. I always wondered, was that the sole purpose of why Liverpool went for Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain? that he would provide that with as, an, as someone who'd come through as a winger and developed into a central midfielder, that Oxlade-Chamberlain could maybe do it. Now, Henderson has obviously done a really good job at that. And Henderson's consistency, I suppose, is one of the things he has over Oxlade-Chamberlain that keeps him in that role. The other thing that you highlight um, moving on then is the, is the importance of the number six position in the Liverpool team. And obviously Fabinho is the the nominal six, but we've seen Henderson play there. We've seen Wijnaldum play there. What is the functionality of the number six position in, in the Liverpool team as you see it? I think that when we, we talk about the six for this Liverpool side, we are mainly talking about Fabinho because he would be the first choice. And I think it was last season, the season before, Pepin Linders, the, the coach at Liverpool, who's very highly rated, he was the one who gave an interview in which he referenced Fabinho as the lighthouse to this Liverpool side. And that always struck me as being something that was really interesting because in a system, this isn't a Jurgen Klopp system from five, six years ago when everything is gegenpressing, everything is pressing and 100% tempo all the time. But there is still quite a lot of chaos out of possession. And, and that suits the likes of Jordan, Jordan Henderson, for example, because he is somebody who will press in chaos. He thrives in that kind of chaotic environment in the centre of the park. Fabinho, on the other hand, is a little bit more nuanced. He, he has this ability to almost slow everything down around him, whether that's just through his ability to position himself out of possession so that he's cutting a passing lane, or he's, he's maybe got somebody in his cover shadow that prevents the opposition from progressing the ball quickly. And then in possession, whenever the ball is shifted across, Fabinho as a six tends to be that reference point. So... Liverpool will have 
two or three reference points in possession. One Van Dyke because he's Van Dyke. One is Firmino because he drops off the front line and occupies position central really intelligently. The other reference point that kind of holds everything together is Fabinho as the six. And he's always in position to take the ball. If the attack breaks down, he's the one who will sweep it up and collect possession again. If if his teammate gets into trouble, he'll be the player who's there to take the ball and just calmly move the ball to another level. But at the same time, when he takes possession, he's got this ability to beat a player centrally, which is really unusual for a six of his type. Um, When he first moved to European football with uh, Rio Ave and then with Real Madrid Madrid Castilla, he was played as a right-back, and you can see elements of that in his game. He's still got the ability to beat players centrally, and that opens up things for the creative players for Liverpool to take possession. Fabinho does have a surprisingly quick burst over the first three or four yards because he looks quite a languid sort, and he always looks like he's just sort of gliding through games. But like you say, when he picks the ball up, he does just have that ability to kind of switch it with his feet and then burst past that first man and break a line. And that then does start to open up. You use the word chaos when talking about Liverpool in terms of their pressing and off-ball work. And that's something that struck me when pre-Fabinho, when the midfield would often be James Milner, Henderson and Wijnaldum. And they'd go up against teams like Paris Saint-Germain and just try to create utter chaos in midfield and knock the opposition off their rhythm. And it would be a case where Often Milner and Henderson, with those massive, you know, capacities for work rate, would be the ones who'd go and press, and then Wijnaldum would stay back in what you call more that reference point role, where he's holding the position and keeps a little bit of shape within that chaos. But obviously, like you say, Fabinho has come into the team now, and there's been some tweaks. You mentioned that this is not a traditional Klopp team. So going back to his Dortmund days, um, what, what, are the, what are the major differences you see between the tactical approach now and the tactical approach in his Dortmund days? I think the way that I, I describe it is just through one word control. Over this last season in particular, with the movement of Trent Alexander-Arnold into that inverted position that we talked about, where he's able to affect the game more from a, a playmaking point of view, I think that that movement allowed Liverpool to control games more than they had in previous seasons under Klopp, but also back to when Klopp was at Dortmund. At Dortmund, they had this really funny way of playing that that people started to pick up on towards the end of Klopp's time at the club, where sometimes they would have possession just inside their own half, and they would deliberately play the ball forward in the corners, now, that wasn't necessarily to release a player in behind. That was to allow the opposition to regain possession in the corner so that they could counter-press so aggressively and win the ball back. And it was just a way for them to almost turn the opposition round and get them all bunched back towards their own goal so that they could win the ball back closer to the goal and make something happen. Now, with this iteration of this Liverpool side, even with the chaos that we talked about that, that is provided by Jordan Henderson, less so by Gini Vinaldum, you're right, he's more of a a calm player, he's more of a blocker of passing lanes than he is a presser, but there are other players in this Liverpool side that, that thrive in chaos the same way that Henderson does, but now we're seeing more of a, a function where he's recognised that teams will sit so deep against Liverpool because they're so scared of the attacking threat that they need to be able to, to exercise more control, and that's where the reference points really come in. 
from the way that Van Dyke's able to use the ball when he's progressing the ball forward and stepping forward from the back, same as Joel Matip on the other side. The ability that Fabinho has, you're right, he's very similar in that way to Patrick Vieira when he was at Arsenal with the ability to take possession and suddenly he's beat two players and you're not quite sure how he's done it. But beating two players centrally opens up spaces for teammates. So all of these things tie in together to offer Liverpool a way to control the game, but then they have that switch in them where as soon as the ball's lost in a counter-pressing situation, that side of Jurgen Klopp's game model still comes out and they still counter-press to win the ball back in high areas, but then they can switch back to control again. And it just seems to be a more nuanced and balanced approach, and I think that's a large part of what made Liverpool so dominant this past season. I totally agree. Like, what you're talking about at Dortmund, it's quite similar to a rugby tactic of kicking for position, kick in behind the winger, look to find touch. Now, not necessarily, obviously in football, you want to keep it in play, but it it is that thing of just pinning back the opposition and getting yourself a really high launch point that you can press where your centre-backs can basically push up almost to the halfway line and try and pin them back. And as you say, Liverpool don't do that as much. And I think it's fair to say that as this Liverpool team has developed, they've become more reliant on an incredible defence than just being an all-out attacking team, which is something that Klopp was maybe accused of in the past, of focusing less on his defence and more on his attacking side. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that, whereas, I mean, we all know that, that Trent gets criticism for his defensive performances. I don't think that's always something that's fully justified, but given his position and his attacking role in the team, if you like, there will always be times in which that space at right back is left open and can be exploited by the opposition. But what Jurgen Klopp's done really well and what the recruitment department have done really well at Liverpool is they've identified defenders that are capable and comfortable defending in space. So Joel Matip, Joe Gomez, Virgil van Dijk are all very, very confident and comfortable if they're pulled into full-back positions in transition. They have the pace and the power to be able to to keep up with these quick attackers and then they have the, the ability to stand them up one-on-one and take the ball from them through a defensive engagement, which is important. And Fabinho also has a role in that as well. Again, he was previously a fullback, so he's quite comfortable covering it across in the wide positions. I think that sometimes when we talk about the defensive system at, at Liverpool, that's where some fans, some members of the fan base, which is completely understandable, they sometimes overlook the role that Gini Vinaldum plays. He sometimes seen as a player who doesn't contribute enough to Liverpool, whether in possession or out of possession, but so often it's his ability to cover passing lanes, to keep players in his cover shadow when they've got possession, that slow the opposition down and allow Liverpool to regain the defensive shape. So I think that the functional midfield of Henderson is the chaotic presser, Fabinho is the reference point, and Vinaldum is that more nuanced defensive player. I think that those three players are very effective at shielding the defensive line, and that's something that's gone a long way to helping them become more compact and more solid defensively. I'm glad you highlight Ginny Wijnaldum, because I do think he's become the most underappreciated player at Liverpool. And I watch him play, and he doesn't win the ball himself a lot, but what he does is he slows runners. And like you say, he blocks passing lanes. He makes people make decisions that they're maybe not comfortable with. But one thing he's very, very good at is shepherding an opposition midfielder into an area where Liverpool 
can can trap them and take the ball off them. And maybe it's not Ginny that takes the ball off them, but he is the one that leads them into that situation. And I think, unfortunately for him, he doesn't get the gaudy numbers, you know, the, the goals, the assists that some midfield players get. He doesn't have the eye-catching, box-to-box, chaotic presence of a Henderson. What he does, like you say, is really nuanced. It's really... He's kind of like a stitch where you don't appreciate it, but if it's gone and your clothes fall apart, then you start to appreciate what he can do for this Liverpool team. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I mean, there's a lot of talk, obviously, at the moment about Thiago. And and if Thiago does happen for Liverpool, I think that it will be in that role that Vinaldum mm. has at the moment. But I think what some people don't recognise as well with Thiago is that his defensive output and defensive metrics are actually superb well as his ability to progress the ball. So I think Thiago maybe coming into this team gives Liverpool the option to progress through the midfield as well if Naby Keita's mm. not fit. I love Naby Keita and I wish that he could be fit for the whole of next season, but that option of either having Thiago or Keita in that left centre midfield role is something that's very interesting. I think Jurgen Klopp has maybe identified that there were times this past season that the game against Napoli in the Champions League, the first game in the group stage that they played each other, six to mind because Napoli were so effective at stopping Van Dijk and I think it was Matip from progressing the ball. They sat high on the Liverpool fullbacks in their 4-2-4 shape, sorry, and Liverpool struggled to create anything progressively because they couldn't progress the ball the way they normally would. Having a midfield player who's comfortable progressing the ball in that manner, I think, gives Liverpool the balance and the options to, to go either way, if you like. But I think that Vinaldum is a player who is underappreciated. Obviously, his contract situation is a little bit dicey at the moment as well. But it always strikes me that he was a player initially when he broke through in Holland that, that played as a 10. Mm. He was a very, very offensive midfielder who scored goals, created goals. And over his career, his roles changed a little bit. And that just shows to me how intelligent of a player he is. That's the thing. I mean, people forget that when he was at Feyenoord, he was a 10 or a winger at PS. Uh, PSV Eindhoven, he largely played as a 10. At Newcastle, he played as a 10 or a left winger. And when Liverpool signed him, he was coming off a season where I think he scored 11 goals. So I think people thought, okay, brilliant, this is more goals going into the team. But what Jurgen Klopp has asked him to do and what he has done is sacrifice a lot of the the attacking side of his game to play this new role. And there's times when we see him play for the Netherlands, or if he plays for Liverpool when when Naby's in the team, and it's Naby and Fabinho who do the the more nuanced side of things and sit that little bit deeper, and he plays the more attacking role that Henderson nominally plays, then we still see that Ginny. And you do begin to think, like, this guy could do so much more, but he's being asked, he's reining himself in for the good of the team. Yeah, of all the Liverpool players in that midfield, I think that Vinaldum is the one that sees the game most as a coach, if you like. He understands that in his role, there have to be sacrifices that allow the rest of the team to, to function and operate properly. And that's something that I think that Klopp and his coaching staff and, and all the recruitment team as well, who are so, so intelligent when looking at the game, I think that they all recognise that that is something that is really important for this Liverpool side. So I think that's why they like to have a player like Vinaldum in there. And that's why I think it might be interesting if Thiago does come in. Does Vinaldum miss out completely or does he move across into the Jordan Henderson role? 
we just don't know yet. I mean, there were times last season when those two did switch their position. I mean, it, it's only a slight switch when you're talking about the left side of central midfield in a 4-3-3 and the right side of central oh. midfield. I think it was a game against Leicester City when Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp were concerned that the likes of Sohunchu and Chilwell were progressing the ball so well through the, the thirds. And they switched Vinaldum over just purely because, like you say, he slows the opposition down. He stopped the opposition from being able to progress the ball on that side. And that unbalanced Leicester City and, and turned the game in Liverpool's favour. So I think having a player who has that versatility and that game intelligence is something that Jurgen Klopp really values. So you did mention Thiago Alcantara and there's an awful lot of talk about him and Liverpool at the moment and a lot of Liverpool fans are wondering how he fits into this team and the obvious role for him would be that role that Wijnaldum plays but then of course there's talk of well what does that mean for Naby Keita, what does that mean for Ginny Wijnaldum I, I don't think it needs to be just that he arrives and those two don't play, I think there is iterations of this Liverpool team where either either Naby or Ginny could switch to the right-hand side. We've also seen Ginny and Thiago play a number six kind of position. Ginny plays it very, very well against Manchester City in the Champions League semi-final when Henderson was suspended. Um, Wijnaldum was brilliant in that role. So how do you see Thiago fitting into this team? Do you think, is it a one-for-one one or will it just be slight tweaks to move other players into the positions. One of the questions I also want you to look, just answer quickly, is the midfield of, of Naby Keita, Fabinho and, Jor- and, uh, and Thiago something that you could see working in certain situations? I think to answer that one first, I think definitely, I think that each of those players, I mean, Naby Keita, I've already touched on the fact that he's one of my favourite players. Um, the way that he is capable of getting in possession and progressing the ball either through dribbling or through passing, is something that I find really important as a central midfielder, and I hope his injury problems are behind him. But I think that what you could see in that midfield that you just talked about is something that, funnily enough, we've seen from Pep Guardiola at Manchester City towards the end of this last season, when because Rodri was struggling a little bit as the six, we started to see Ilkay Gundogan played in the midfield instead, instead of David Silva, instead of Phil Foden, instead of Bernardo Silva. It was Gundogan, Rodri as the six, and then Kevin De Bruyne. And they almost played, it was a 4-3-3, but in possession it almost became a double pivot because Gundogan would be slightly deeper, almost on the same line as Rodri, and that allowed Kevin De Bruyne the freedom to almost play as a 10. He was still playing from the right-hand side, but he drifted a lot more than you would normally have seen him in the last couple of seasons when David Silva obviously played as the other eight, and him and De Bruyne kind of split the pitch in half, if you like. That's something that Liverpool could look to do as well when they, if they had the likes of um, the likes of Thiago playing in that role. So if you, you play Thiago and Fabinho almost as a double pivot to give you more defensive solidity and more ability to progress the ball through deeper areas. And then you could allow Naby Keita the freedom to push forward almost at the 10 role. You could combine with Firmino in those areas and that could be something really interesting in terms of creating overloads for, for Liverpool. Yeah, and that, that could then offer a new dimension to this team because, as you're saying, in certain games last season and, and in previous years, Liverpool did become a little bit easy to play against if you nullify the full-backs, if you stop the outball from Van Dijk and from either Matip or Gomez. They did become a little bit stagnant and it would become a bit of a war of attrition and Liverpool would be trying to rely on individual quality 
from a, from a Mo Salah or a Sadio Mane to break the opposition down. Now, luckily for Liverpool, those two are outrageous talents, and, and you do have a chapter in the book dedicated to the uh, to the two wide men. Now, you've termed them in the book as false wingers, and that's an interesting phrase because we hear a lot about the false nine. But explain to me what a false winger is. It's the same kind of concept. So with the Liverpool attack, their three-man attack, if you're taking the, the first-choice players, obviously it's Salah on the right-hand side, Mane on the left-hand side, and then Firmino is the nine. Part of what makes Liverpool so effective, I think, is that they they identified and signed Firmino. Now, when they signed Firmino, there was there was no guarantee that he would play as that nine. When he was at Hoffenheim, he was he was more of a support striker at times, or a wide player coming inside, or or even if he was a striker, he was somebody who would become more of a reference point maybe. But at Liverpool, with Firmino's playing profile, means that he he drops off so much in the midfield. And then the two wide attackers, so it's just, you're right, I, I tend to inverted wingers. Um, and the, the the idea is that the two of them will come inside to occupy that space that Firmino's left behind now. Normally, when we talk about these wide players who cut inside, we're, we're kind of talking about them occupying the half space, but they actually occupy the full central area. So they, they don't even come inside a little bit. They come right inside to play almost as nines. And then the two of them with Firmino deeper, and then you have Jordan Henderson, who would be on the right-hand side to allow Trent to be in the half space on that side. On the left, you have Robertson pushing high to provide the width, and all of a sudden, Liverpool were able to to control space and to to occupy space in the final third in a way that was a little bit new and a little bit difficult for opposition defences to counter. And and that's why they've got so much joy this past season, I think. So you've referenced Manchester City and Pep Guardiola's um, alterations to his team. And obviously your first book was Mastering the Premier League, the tactical concepts behind Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. And I've just finished reading it. Um, And it's fascinating the the, the depth that you go into. There's a couple of things I wanted to highlight. Firstly, the Fernandinho role and how important he was to them. Do you think that when they went and bought Rodri, was that maybe a shift away from that sort of system to something new? Because stylistically, Fernandinho and Rodri are very, very different players. Yes, they are. I mean, I think that the sign of Rodri made sense in a sense that he was... If you took Rodri, for example, and you placed him in the Barcelona side of Pep Guardiola instead of Busquets that side suddenly becomes very different because Busquets and Fernandinho kind of have the same ability in their prime to play almost with the half-touch, which is what Barcelona players often reference made them so effective, that, that ability to almost shift possession while barely touching the ball that, that made Xavi, Iniesta and Busquets and Messi at the time so so strong. And when with Rodri coming in, obviously there was a bit of an acclimatisation period and that perhaps wasn't evident in the first few weeks of the season. But he looked very good initially with Manchester City. He looked like a, a player who had been playing in this system for a long time. And that impressed a lot of people because typically this Pep Guardiola system, playing as the six, as that Fernandinho role that you mentioned, that is one of the key roles in the team because of the importance in possession and out of possession. And I think Rodri began to struggle a little bit towards the end of the season, which is why 
they made that choice to start playing Gundogan because Gundogan could he could perform out of possession and in possession. He was capable of progressing the ball, and he's another one who gets a little bit more stick from his, his club's fan base than I think he should get because of the tactical intelligence with which he plays the role. So I think that when they took Fernandinho in, and of course it's a, it's a Pep Guardiola concept, if you like, to continually take central midfielders and convert them to play at centre-back, and mm. I understand why. It allows him clean progression the ball from the back, and he will accept defensive mistakes because he, he covets that progression from that position so much that almost that, that becomes something that we expect to see. But I think that Rodri's performances as the season went on, he struggled a little bit to not so much to progress the ball because he's still a very capable progressive passer, but he struggled to understand the the angles that the likes of De Bruyne would like to receive the ball and, and that's where their play started to slow down a little bit. That was before the break for COVID and I think post-COVID when football came back, that's when we saw Gundogan come into the team a little bit more and things got a little bit cleaner for Manchester City. You mentioned uh, in the book uh, the, what you talked about uh, earlier, which was setting the team up with number eights, but then those players becoming tens the way Kevin De Bruyne has and, and David Silva has for them in the past as well. Um, do you think that the loss of Silva is going to be massively effective for them? Now, I look at it and I think they lost Zabaleta, then they lost Yaya, then they lost Vincent Company. Now they're losing Silva. Next year, they may well lose Fernandinho. That's an awful lot of pieces of their identity and what they've been. And also a lot of leadership and winning walking out the door. Is this something that you think Guardiola will have to uh, to go out and invest in? Or is it something that you think they can replace from within the squad? I think a lot of people, are, a lot of Manchester City fans and a lot of England fans, are very, very hopeful that he will replace David Silva one for one with Phil Foden. Now, I don't think that you will, and that's not to say that I don't think that Phil Foden is ready for regular first-team football at a club with the profile of Manchester City. I absolutely think he is. He has that ability that we referenced earlier on with Naby Keita to be able to carry the ball through the midfield or to combine, and, and his creative creativity in the final third is something that could become really, really important. I think that situationally, we will see Phil Foden playing as that, that left-sided eight. I think to start the season, it'll be Gundogan, it'll be Rodri, it'll be De Bruyne, and De Bruyne will play more as a traditional 10 in possession as opposed to an 8 in that right-sided half space. I have seen a lot of talk in the media at the moment about Hossam Awar, the, the Lyon player, who I, I'm fairly sure that you like a lot as well, Dave. Um, yeah. I think that he makes a lot of sense for a club like Manchester City because of his ability to, to occupy the same kind of positions in possession that David Silva did. It, but what we're seeing, though, is a, almost a complete change to when I wrote the book it was referenced in the season before last and the season before that. Mm. Um, this last season, with the loss of Leroy Sané playing as that, that outlet on the left-hand side, you had Raheem Sterling on the right-hand side, but Raheem Sterling likes to come inside, and that would in turn create space for Kyle Walker to go around the outside. On the left-hand side, you had Leroy Sané, who would, wouldn't cut inside. He always stayed on the outside looking to beat the defender for pace, and that's why David Silva's ability to, to occupy the half space and to combine with Sane was so effective at releasing Sane in behind. It happened time and time again, and that's where that famous Manchester City goal comes from with Silva feeding the ball through to Sane, Sane bursting the penalty area, pulling the back ball across the penalty area, and the ball being tapped into the net. 
I think that when Pep Guardiola this last season started to play Raheem Sterling on that side, Raheem Sterling still wanted to come inside. You he, wanted to almost play as a nine as opposed mm. to staying out on that left flank. And that changed the, the focus of what that left-sided eight had to be. The left-back, whether it's Bernard Mendy or I think that this season we'll see quite a lot of Laporte playing at left-back with the signing of Nathan Ake. I think that those profiles don't fit as well to a player who's going to not going to occupy that left-hand side all the time. I'm interested to see if Ferran Torres comes in and plays that role or if it will be time to time Phil Foden as we, we saw towards the end of the season. But I think that to begin with, it'll be Gundogan as in the replacement of Silva. But I do think it's something they need to recruit because you're absolutely right, they've lost. It's not so much the talent that they've lost in recent years. Like Leroy Sané, I don't think, comes into the same conversation because he's a player who has pure talent and maybe not the kind of cultural fit that Pep Guardiola Manchester City wanted. But the likes of Fernandinho, the likes of David Silva, the likes of Vincent Company, how much longer do they have Kevin De Bruyne behind that? Mm. Coming to the point now where he's coming into his 30s, he's still in his peak age and he's still a player who, who is absolutely world-class and almost in a tier of his own in terms of his own position and role. But eventually he's going to move on as well and that's something that the recruitment department in Man City have to be looking at. But I've got a feeling that Pep Guardiola's maybe looking at that as well. and He might time his departure with some of those players coming towards the end of their peak. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I don't think their recruitment has been particularly good over the last couple of years. I think if you look at the majority of their key players, they they outdate Pep, the likes of Sterling, De Bruyne, Silva, Aguero, company, Yaya, Fernandinho. Um, he has obviously bought some really important pieces. Um, the likes of America Laporte you know, has been a really good buy. I was, I was really surprised when they signed... Uh, Ferran Torres, and he was sort of pushed forward as, well, this is the Sané replacement, because they're very, very different players, and I agree with you. I think one of the things that made them so dangerous was that when they play that 4-3-3, De Bruyne had the the range and the ability to float, even out as far as being an out-and-out right-winger at times, and Sané could really hold the width and provide natural width on the left-hand side, and they could spread the field vertically as well as horizontally, and it made them much harder to um, to pick up. Whereas, as you said, when Sterling played in that left-sided role, he wants to play more centrally, and it made them much more compact and much more narrow and much easier to stop, I thought. Yeah, definitely. I think that that was the, the big problem that they had last season. They almost became predictable in a sense that you knew the kind of, I mean, to be fair, they were probably predictable when they were they were set in records and they were they, they prepped Liverpool as the title of the season before mm. last. They were predictable then in their patterns of play, but they were so effective with it because of the speed of the passing and the angles that they took up. And that was something that was obviously instilled in the training pitch and something the players took to really well. Last season, when those angles had to change because maybe David Silva wasn't playing the same level of first few minutes, Leroy Sané wasn't there, the left-back situation was up in the air. And these are all areas, you're absolutely right, the recruitment team needs to be better at fixing because Ferran Torres is a fantastic player, but he's not Leroy Sané. And there aren't many Leroy Sanes out there in world football, and that could be the kind of situation where Manchester City fall down a little bit unless Pep Guardiola has got a plan and don't put it past him to adapt. I mean, 
he's somebody who hates losing. He, he will not have been happy this season that, that Liverpool were so dominant. And Manchester City, I think, will come into next season flying out the gates because of that. I think, though, that they need to have a plan to account for those different kinds of movements in the final third because sometimes it looked a little bit stagnant. I wonder if he might consider moving Riyad Mahrez from the right to the left. Now, I know Mahrez has primarily played on the right during his time in England and was footballer of the year playing off the right and cutting in on his left foot. But just to have a natural lefty who can beat a man, has really good really good pace, can cross accurately on the run, be it the low cross, the, the cutback, or a lofted ball to the back post, the things that Sané was so good at, Mares could perhaps give them 60-70% of what Sané gave them, whereas I don't think anyone else in the squad will. I think Sterling and Torres will always want to cut inside onto their right foot. They're always going to have a narrower starting position as well. And as you say, without the, the full-backs, and I'm a little surprised they didn't get involved in the Ben Chilwell thing, but maybe the price was a bit prohibitive for them. Without a left-back who will consistently be there and provide that outlet, I wonder if Mares could be the option. Yeah, I think that Riyad Mahrez has surprised Pep Guardiola a little bit with his willingness to acclimatise to the way that they like to play. I think that at Leicester City, he very much relied on pure talent, if you like, and and perhaps there were sometimes questions over the work ethic. That hasn't quite been the case. I think that he has played over on the left-hand side once or twice, but he never really convinced in terms of whether he had that ability that you're talking about to, to do all those things that you need the Sané replacement to do. I think if I was Pep Guardiola, that is absolutely the choice that I would make because I want Raheem Sterling back over on the right-hand side where he's able to cut inside and, and affect the game from that flank. I think he's more effective there. I actually think that Pep Guardiola, if he's still at Manchester City in two years, I think that Pep Guardiola sees Raheem Sterling as his eventual replacement for Sergio Aguero playing as the nine, and that's why they've been doing so much work on, on Sterling's finishing over the last 18 to 24 months. Don't forget they've also got Bernardo Silva who could fill that mm. role as well. So they have options. But the key, and, and you're right, that they need that player who can stay wide on the left and, and put crosses in. I know that last year that they were in for Chilwell and deal fell apart in the last second. I know that they've also looked at other left-back solutions in the Premier League and Ryan Bertrand's one that Manchester City have discussed. But that that's a player who is more of a cultural fit who could come in and be a serviceable left-back as opposed to the left-back of the future, which is what I think they really need to look at. But at the moment in world football, it feels like there's a little bit of a dearth of left-backs coming through at that age range, at that quality that, that super clubs are going to be looking at. That's why Real Madrid jumped with Berlin Mendy at Lyon so quickly as opposed to letting him develop a little bit more. Yeah. That's why Liverpool have done so well this season, this summer, to sign a backup to Andy Robertson from within that market because I spent some time for, for my, my day job looking at it a little bit and looking at where the market inefficiencies are, if you like, and where players are available. And at left back, there just seems to be a little bit of a shortage at the moment. I wonder if City might look at someone like Sergio Regulon from uh, from Real Madrid or even a slightly older player like Tagliafico from Ajax. The one I think would be a great fit, but he is still a little bit inconsistent, is Theo Hernandez at AC Milan. Just from a profile point of view, big rangy athlete, really good on the ball, 
powerful runner, can beat a man on the dribble. There's questions over his attitude, and he's obviously not quite as consistent as you'd like yet, but he, he might be someone that Guardiola would look at and think, okay, that's the type of player I want um, in that role. You mentioned Sterling's finishing. I'm just looking at his goal numbers, and the, the jump he's had is incredible. So to go back to 13-14, which is his first real season as a as a regular start for Liverpool, he scored 10 and 38. He went to 11 and 52 in 14-15 his last year at Liverpool. Then 11 and 47 and 10 and 47 his first two years at City. And since then, 23 in 46, 25 in 51, and then 31 in 52 which I think does lend to your thought that this may be City's number nine of the future. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I genuinely do see it. I think that what's interesting is that if you read between the lines a little bit, whenever he's done well, scored a goal, scored a couple of goals, in the post-match comment, Guardiola always references the fact that, that Sterling's done so well to score and his finishing has improved so much. So it, it's his way of continuously building Raheem Sterling from the background, if you like. I think that there are still errors. I mean, you still see moments when his finishing is off in a position where you're expecting him to at least hit the target. But when you take the player that Liverpool signed, who was all potential, Mm. the the potential was was always staggering. I mean, everybody talks about I mean, You hear all the time when people talk about Jamie Vardy that everybody knew Jamie Vardy when he was in the non-leagues and everybody was tracking him. It was the same with Raheem Sterling. Everybody knew of Raheem Sterling. But Liverpool were the ones that got the deal done. And I think that when you, you consider what Liverpool are now, a player like Raheem Sterling would have been really, really interesting in their system. And, and I'm kind of glad that they eventually won the Champions League and the league so that they could that their fans can enjoy seeing Raheem Sterling when they get back into stadiums and play Manchester City next. I'm sure that the fans won't let him forget that. Um, I think that when you talk about his ability to finish, I think a lot of it was down purely to somebody at the club in my opinion, has explained the XG to Raheem Sterling and explained to him, do not shoot in this position when you're outside the width of the, the, the goals. Try not to shoot from there if you can. Try to get into position so you're, you're within the width of the six-yard box or the goal mouth, and that's where you shoot. And, and we've seen his numbers jump up staggeringly just when the shot locations have changed. Yeah, I, I've always been a, a huge fan of Sterling. I was devastated when he was sold. And I think as as he's progressed over the last three years, um, the forty nine million that City paid Liverpool for him w- was, you know, looks looks an absolute bargain now because he's easily a hundred million pound footballer now. Um, Lee, you have a third book that you're working on, so uh, tell me a little bit about that. Third book is uh, titled Marcel Bielsa: Thirteen Steps to the Premier League. Um, it's a title that kind of references one of the 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 nuances of Marcelo Bielsa when previously uh, an old club he used to always take 13 steps in his technical area before turning and taking 13 steps the other way and he would continually do this throughout the whole match while watching the game and and nobody fully understood why he took 13 steps and I don't think he fully understood it why either but it's similar to the first two books in which I'm going to break down the game model of Marcelo Bielsa as much as I can with a coach like Bielsa, who is so intricate with the the little details, if you like, in possession and out of possession. But I'm going to break down the concepts to, to almost make it more readable, if you like. That, that's always been the aim of the books, that, that people who are interested in football tactics, but 
maybe don't like the level of complexity that some people who write about them put into it. Um, I've always wanted to make the books accessible to people who were interested in it and wanted to learn more, and I'm going to try and do the same for Marcelo Bielsa. So do we have a, a potential release time for that? I'm, I'm assuming sometime next year. Uh, the, at the moment, the publisher has said either January or February next year, so I'm still working through the research phase at the moment, and then it'll be a case of getting the manuscript put together. Um, the, it's the images that take the most time when I'm doing these books, to be honest with you, because there are so many of them and it has, has to be done in a very specific way. Um, so once I get all of that done, then we're looking at the beginning of next year. And that'll be with pitch publishing again. Perfect. Lee, this has been this has been great. I've, I've really, really enjoyed this. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into this book on Klopp and that Bielsa book. I mean, that's that's the holy trinity of managers in the Premier League. Um, from a tactical point of view, the, the three fascinating individuals, three fascinating personalities, and from a tactical point of view, in innovators, each of them. Um, from from a, a Lee Scott point of view, though, hopefully when the season uh, begins, we're going to have you on um, once a week, whenever you can spare the time. Yeah. Um, yeah to talk about whatever tactical trends you're seeing in the league, any exciting matchups that, you know, that you think may, may occur before you go. The one thing I want to get your opinion on, or the one person I want to get your opinion on is Chris Wilder. I don't know if you've watched a whole ton of Sheffield United or if you've, if you've really done a deep dive on them, but I I find Chris Wilder fascinating. I find some of his in-game switches and, and tweaks that he does to be really, really interesting. Yeah, I think that there were a lot of people who were taken by surprise by Chris Wilder last season in Sheffield United, and I'm not going to pretend that I watched a whole lot of Sheffield United when they were in the Championship. I didn't. I watched the odd game. I was fascinated with what I was hearing about the, the obviously the overlapping centre-backs that everybody always talks about, but mm. actually so much more than that with Sheffield United. It's there. What really fascinates me about them is the the way that they play out of possession. We saw that in the match against Liverpool last season, the 1-0 match when I think it was Wijnaldum that scored with a shot that slipped through Dean Henderson into the net. And that was the first point last season, I think, where we saw Liverpool almost completely bereft of ideas and how to break down a team. And it was this, it was almost back, I'm sure you'll remember this team as well, the, the AC Milan of Arrigo Saki. Yeah. It, was, it was almost back to the same way that they defended in terms of the, the compact block, but they moved so efficiently as one in the block, which was great. Normally, when you see teams in possession against a defensive block that's deep, you see them move the ball from left to right, and sometimes people think that they're, they're passing for passing sake, but all they're doing is trying to move the defensive block, and they're hoping that as the defensive block moves, the connections become stretched and space appears. That never happened against Sheffield United in that match once. Sheffield United were so good off the ball. But then in possession as well, they, they really impressed me more towards the end of the season. They became more expressive and expansive. And the signing of Sander Berg is, I think, a masterstroke from, from Chris Wilder because he was a midfielder that gives them a completely different profile. I think that going into next season, beyond the ones that we've already talked about, yes, I'll be watching Guardiola, I'll be watching Klopp, I'll be watching Bielsa. But I'll also be watching Wilder and I'll be watching Ralph Hasenhutel at Southampton. I think that, that they're the five that I'm really looking forward to seeing next time. So in 2022, uh, we can expect that the in-depth book on Chris Wilder 
and maybe in 2023 we'll get the Ralph book. Um, yeah, there's. I'm telling you, I, I, I'm, I'm really actually. I love the the comparison to the Saki team that you've mentioned to to that Milan team, and I always I sort of watch Sheffield United this season, and a lot of it is the familiarity the players have together, and then unfortunately for them, when one member of that defensive unit goes out and say Jack Robinson came in for a couple of games after the lockdown and Jack Robinson's a fine player. It's not a criticism of him, but he didn't have the reps and the minutes with the others. He didn't have that almost telepathic understanding with the others the way they normally do when it's the the setback five who play, you know, I think they played 33 games together or something this year. Once one part of that is gone, it just changes the, the dynamic and those little gaps that you talk about, they did appear a little bit more often. Um, so I'm really interested to see what Wilder can do moving forward as he tries to refresh this team a little bit and add a piece here, a new piece there. Um, I think he does really interesting things up front as well, where both forward players will just drop wide and they'll play with an empty forward, forward space and then sort of have runners coming from different different angles. I think Chris Wilder is a fascinating coach and I think he's a really a really fascinating man as well. Um, so I look forward to hearing your comments on him through the year. Lee, where can people find you on Twitter? At the moment, find me on at FM Analysis. I tend to put anything right up there. Perfect. And the book, uh, King Klopp, Rebuilding the Liverpool Dynasty, is available in all good bookstores. It's available on Amazon, Book Depository, wherever you get your books. Um, if it's anything close to the Guardiola book, I know it's going to be brilliant. So I would highly recommend checking out both books and uh, giving Lee a follow on Twitter when you get the chance. Lee, thanks so much. I'll speak to you again soon. Podcast Network.